Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Eurasian Americans. This is your host, Jerry Wan, and I want to say thank you so much for tuning in and listening to our show. Whether this is your first time listening or this is your 38th episode with us, I really, really do appreciate you listening in. This is the second episode that we are sharing here on May 1st, which marks the beginning of Asian Pacific American Heritage Month. And I wanted to share this story and this conversation with David Chen uh, because I think it's one of the most emotional interviews that I've had and just filled with passion and, and just so much energy behind it. Um, David is an amazing entrepreneur and just an accomplished business person. But more than that, he's been super supportive to me and just been a really, really good mentor and older brother figure. Again, even in just a short time that we've met, and I am so excited to share this story with him, his venture through early childhood, uh, helping his parents and corporate life, and, and now where he sits, having a great impact on so many people globally. Excited and honored to share David Chen's story with you as we kick off Asian Pacific American Heritage Month. And without further ado, here's my conversation with David. Welcome, everybody, to Dear Asian Americans, wherever you are, uh, whenever you may be listening to this, we sincerely hope that you are staying healthy and safe and sane and uh, preferably inside, at least where we're recording right now, uh, when we're recording. Um, we're about to have a really, really warm weekend in California. So fight those urges, fight those temptations, stay home. The more we do that, the sooner we can all hang out together and, and celebrate all the fun stuff that we're doing. Today, I get to have a really, really awesome guest on my show. Um, He's got one of the most interesting backgrounds I've heard of. And once we get to know him, you'll definitely agree. He's also got a very, very cool nickname, which then he's created his own brand and his own podcast around. If you are somebody who is interested in going into professional services at a big four firm globally, if you are somebody who is interested in venturing into the world of e-games and video games, or if you're just somebody who just wants to learn tips and tricks about being a successful, more importantly, a human-centered uh, business person, uh, we're going to have a lot of fun today. So really, really honored and excited to welcome David Chen to the show. Hi, David. Hey, buddy. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you. Um, so when we look at your resume, it's like, wow, you got you got Deloitte on there. You are you know partner of a world-recognizable um, e-game company, e-sports company called FaZe Clan, and you're, interest in, you're involved in a number of uh, different and fun um, and almost uh, very inspiring brands out there. Um, so I want to know where David came from, because obviously things like this don't happen overnight. <sighs> um, now, you know, you, uh, those people who know you, you also know you as sort of the perpetual mentor, the older brother figure um, who has been so kind to me and so kind to many other people in now um, paying it forward um, in a way, let's say, but not really paying it forward because it's just part of the ecosystem, right? There's no backwards and forwards. It's just um, fluid being a human being. Share with us how the Chen family um, ended up in America and, and where did you guys live in your first few years? You know, so we, we came from Taiwan. I was born in Taipei. So I am probably a, a legitimate fob, as you would say. Um, definitely fresh off the boat. It's a cool boat, so I'll take that. Uh, came to the States when I was about two or three. Um, and really in the household, we spoke Mandarin. And then when my parents were really talking trash, they speak Taiwanese, right? So, so <laughs> for me, you know, me and Ian, so for me, it was like, they don't, you don't understand. I was like, I understand everything that's not necessary and is really not good to talk. But I knew all the, all the bad words and the dumb words because that's Asian parents, man. And, um, 
you know, it, it, was, it was real humble beginnings. We're, we're really economically poor. I think like most of us, our parents struggled to speak the language. They tried their best. They weren't educated. My parents, unfortunately, did not go to college. They went to high school looking for a better life and came to this great country, like, like so many of us. And I remember my, my kind of like my earliest my earliest memories were were very fond memories, but there were things like like our kitchen table was a cardboard box with um, a yellow uh, draping over it, right? A tablecloth per se, uh, and going through the garbage can in the most ghetto communities and taking the beds out. And I didn't even know what a box spring or what a, a mattress was, a frame was, because to me it was so foreign. Like I didn't know until I was like 15 what the heck that was. Um, and really just kind of grew up in that, in that upbringing. And it was real interesting because my parents, like most immigrants, gravitated towards the restaurant business. And they were in the restaurant business. And I remember I remember this one thing where they didn't have enough money to afford a babysitter. And my mother was a coat checking person. And inside, it was it was basically like a, a closed door and then behind all the, all the coats. And my mom hid me. And told me to be very quiet at work. And I just sat there till the late, late hours. And I sat in this little corner with my two toys uh, and just played. And it was very, very quiet. And not really understanding kind of the upbringing where we're at and knowing how we're economically a little bit more uh, lesser than, than some people. And, and really just kind of understanding that, right? And that's kind of where we came from and started. And, and it was a really interesting struggle because like most Asian American kids, your parents can't help you with homework after third grade. You know, you, you have to start teaching your sibling, you know, you, you take on the, the bigger adult role, but uh, as, as well as you do a sibling role and those lines get very blurred because you're teaching them all the stuff that what prom is and what homecoming is and what driving is and how to deal with sex and drugs and things that your parents will never talk to you about, right? They're no-nos, but they were the reality of our society. And, and that's kind of, you know, how I came here. And, and, and it was a very interesting journey, but it was a very humbling one as well. How, coming from that, um, coming from that background, which is humbling, right? And I think a common theme amongst many of our guests is things that we don't ever get to talk about with our parents. Um, not because they're bad parents; they obviously, you know, sacrifice so much for us that we can't we can't even imagine doing that today, right? Just the amount of ability to do grunt work and you know really eat the humble pie every single day. But these discussion topics, as you mentioned, whether it's sex or homework or girls or American life. They had to defer to society to teach us that stuff because, one, they were too busy trying to survive and put food on the table, literally. And, and two, they, they didn't know what it was, right? Like, um, I remember, you know, they're like, what the hell is Halloween? Right? Yeah. Like, uh, you know, Easter? stuff. Like, right. What's Easter? You know, you know why, why are we doing this? What's Thanksgiving? And, and I remember, you know, like the one thing about being an Asian American that most Asian Americans have to understand is we're all in the same boat. It's not Japanese and Koreans and Chinese and, 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 and Taiwanese. and We're all Asian Americans. And, and now more than ever, we really need each other. And our communities lack that voice. And that's why when someone of another ethnicity or another background, when something happens to them, they riot up. And our people, we brush it off. But we brush it off because as immigrants, we were told to shut up from our parents. Don't cause trouble. Don't cause problems. Be quiet. If you get bullied, it's very, very bad. Go tell your teacher. And they didn't understand that when you were telling your teacher, the kids would make fun of you and pummel you more. And they didn't understand that as hard as they were working, you're on TV and you're watching Family Matters and Full House. And those dads basically are raising you. They're raising you. And, and Arnold is, 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 is a father figure. And Sylvester Stallone's a father figure. They're teaching you what it's like to be a man. 
and, and this society and Rocky and, and the American cause and the American dream. And yet you're so conflicted because we know that our parents love us. We know our parents are working so hard and they're doing the best they can, but they can never assimilate or relate to a lot of things that we're growing up to. And I remember one of the things I told my parents was my mom was probably about, I was probably about 36 at the time. We were watching Karate Kid, the the new one. And and there was a scene where the kids are beating up on, on, you know, Jaden Smith, you know, purely because he's probably black and he was new and, and it was what it was. My mom looks at me and she goes, Oh, I'm so glad that, that that never happened to you. And I look at my mom and I said, Mom, when I was about 10 to about 14, I got the shit kicked out of me daily. And kids would beat me up and they would tease me for my haircut and, and my wear Asian clothes and, and why I smelled a certain way and why we take your shoes off and, 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 and why my eyes were so small and why you have to cover our shoes at home and, and, and all that weird stuff. And really... The crux of it was they just didn't understand. And we didn't understand. And trying to explain that to them. I, I mean, I remember I didn't even know what a chef boyer he was. So I was like 14. And I was like, this is amazing, you know. And, and, and the holidays was a big thing. And I think a lot of people don't talk about it because our parents don't know how to deal with it because they take it as we're shaming them or as we're not trying to understand them and say, look, I know you the best you did. Here's what I struggled was. Uh, I think the other thing is we have we weren't able enough to be more compassionate and forgiving because I guarantee if any of us as Asian Americans were thrown in another environment, another country, we probably couldn't do half of what our parents did. We don't have the grit for it. And so that allows it. But the more important thing is forgiving and loving understanding. You know, it took me a very long time and I'm very open about that in my podcast about my relationship, my father, lack of relationship and all the things that a typical Asian dad probably shouldn't be doing and how my mom had to stick with it. And how divorce was not a answer. It was it was a no-no. And we're sticking with this. We're going to make it work. And really trying to understand him where there's a point where we would talk to each other more. We disown each other. And then one day I just woke up and realized that we just didn't love him the way he needed to be loved. And from there, me and my dad have a great relationship now where, you know, it, it's very scary to talk to that father figure. But it's more scary if they pass away and you never can. And, and, and I say this all the time, and I know we've talked about this in our, in our previous conversation, which is, listen, if you can give someone who is economically not viable a dollar and that person ends up doing it to drugs, that's between them and a higher being. Between you and that higher being, you did the right thing. And I, and I encourage people to do that with their parents because you at least get it off your chest. There's no kid that doesn't want their parent to love them. There's no kid that doesn't want their parent to understand. I was just watching Tiger Tell two days ago with Christina Co., big fan of hers. And, and, and the ending, like the ending just, I don't want to river everyone, the ending was very something I can understand and relate to. And, and I really know that they're trying their very, very best to do it. But now it's our turn to try our best to make them assimilate and understand. Right. And, and sometimes it works out when you have grandchildren. But if you don't have grandchildren like myself, you, you really have to kind of give them the okay and the understanding because you're going to be at peace. And that to me is the most important thing. And you won't feel the guilt because we're always taught to shame. Right. It's all shame. It's not honor. You look bad. You shouldn't do it that way. But the shame in our hearts and, and that lack of love that we have felt or the emptiness will get filled if you're able to take the bigger step and do that because they really don't know better. And you do. And therefore, if you're trying to do it. And, and I know for me personally, it's made a world difference in my life. You bring up a good point, David. I think 
whether it's career expectations or life expectations or whatever, a lot of us grow up uh, explicitly or internally resenting our parents for being forced or pressured to live a certain way and saying, why can't you be more open-minded to do the things that I want to do? Yet we are all guilty of this and we realize it much, much later in life is I expected them to love me in the way that I wanted to and I wasn't open-minded. We were not open-minded as an entire generation to receive the love that they were trying to provide because they were literally doing the best that they could. And you're right. If at your age and my age, they're like, all right, uh, we're packing up our shit and moving to Brazil. That's it. I, we can't do it. Yeah. And then to tell me that in one generation that you can sit there and I can sit here and have this discussion. Right. No, it doesn't work that way. Right. And then so those those odds are, you know, every Asian American second generation success story is effectively zero if you look at it statistically. But we all went through that. Um, so. Speaking of statistically improbable things that immigrants have done, your path into your first uh, post-college career right. was an unconventional one. Right. Um, share with us, you know, um, how did you end up at University of Arizona in Tucson and, and end up at Deloitte? So unlike a typical Asian, and, and I'm sure a lot of Asians who are like me out there, I'm terrible in math. I played sports. I, I was never a bad child. I didn't do anything that would ever worry my parents per se. But I, I wasn't a really focused child. And that time it was, oh, focus more on your, on your schoolwork. And, and, and now it's time for tutoring. And I looked at my parents and I was like, it's, it's not here. And that resonates from, I think I mentioned this to you. My mom tells me a story in fourth or fifth grade where I got honor roll. And I gave her the paperwork and I said I made honor roll. And she had no idea what the heck that meant. And she tells a story, which I think I blocked out of my mind, where I got the paper later and I threw it in the garbage can. And she picked it up and she opened it for the school asked what it was. And they said that I did good grades. But from that day, I never did honor roll. And I still to this day cannot, I vaguely remember it now. Maybe I put it in my head, but I don't remember it. And so the path for me in school was I was a kid in SATs that had like the 1020. And that was amazing. And all the other Asian kids were hitting 1600s and 1500s. And you would hear, oh, Andy did 1600. And he's a stockbroker at 14 and a half. And he's on the varsity tennis team. And oh, his Chinese is so good. Oh, and Andrea, oh, she, uh, honor roll and this and this. And then there's just me, the, the, the guy that's out there. And I think it's a lot of Asian Americans that wanted the expectations, but lost confidence and faith, not necessarily through their family, and their, but through their friends and their environment. And when we weren't hitting the assimilation of the A plus and the 100 and the doctors and the lawyers and the engineers, we were failures. We're ugly failures. Or if I'm playing sports and I'm, I'm on varsity and I'm starting, I'm the captain of my sports team. My parents were okay with it. But then my aunts were like, Oh, that's never going to do anything for you. You need to go back and focus on school. Look at my daughter. She has eight PhDs. And I'm not knocking it. I'm just saying there is no course. And, there, and, and, and we as Asian Americans have a little bit more harder because we have to adhere to those standards. And there is a sense of embarrassment. And there is an embarrassment from our parents when they talk to their friends and their family about us. And then that's how I got to U of A because the reality is out of the, the 10 schools I applied to, I only got into like four and U of A was the closest one. And, and I was like, F it. I've never been to Tucson. I'm just going to go. And my parents took me there. Boy, was that an eye opener. And I went to U of A and, and I was there for six years. I was president. And then that, you know, I didn't really hang out with Asian Americans growing up. So I grew up in El Paso where it was 8% Hispanic. So that was nice. But I would go to Taiwan every summer and then I would show up at U of A and I'm the, the only kid who's taking community college math that's Asian. Because I'm that bad at math. 
I mean, it was the expectations weren't working there. I mean, I remember one time I was getting tutored by my friend Roy. Roy is Caucasian. And I looked at Roy and I said, you realize that everybody here thinks I'm tutoring you and you're the one who's tutoring me because I'm so bad at math. And then you have to break those stereotypes with all these young people because there are a lot of good Asians in math. And then there's a couple of three or four of you that are just like the bad math Asians, right? And like, oh, what's up? Like, you're my friend. And that was like the running joke. And, and we grew up in a time where, where it was interesting because it, we really had to be American. And when I got into U of A, it was a blessing. But I stayed there for six years. And it wasn't because I was getting my PhD or my master's like some of you geniuses out there. I wasn't smart enough to get my bachelor's degree because I couldn't figure out what I wanted to do. I changed my major like eight times. And I was told eventually from the, the vice dean of the business colleges, Stop wasting your time. Stop wasting our time. We're really, really, really good at what we do. Get out of this college. You're never going to make anything in business. And I remember the look on my face and the disappointment. And the only thing I worried about is what my parents were going to say. I didn't care about anything else. And the next thing was, what are my friends going to say? You know, and it was never about, well, what's going to make me happy? and Can I get it done? And this is a 21-year-old, 22-year-old man at that point, or young man who was trying to figure this out. And then the bottom fell out. I was six years into college. I didn't get a degree. It was starting to get embarrassing. I couldn't figure out how to lie anymore. I couldn't figure out how to do it. I know two other Asians that are like still my friends to this day that kind of suffered and went the same thing. They both ended up getting degrees. I still haven't gotten that degree. And then I go work at my parents' restaurant because both of them had heart attacks. And we had to do what an Asian family does. Mom and dad are about to die. I'm done with school. You've been there six years. Your sister skipped a year. My sister went to school. My parents could only afford one person. So I went back to you to... El Paso, worked at a restaurant from 22 to 25, put in 100, 120 hours a week in the restaurant business, did everything in the restaurant business just to keep our home. And we had to start all over again. And I pissed away six years of my life because my ego and the falseness of being an Asian in America, nice car, uh, good job, uh, notoriety, but pure and unadulterated unhappiness unhappiness, unhappy with everything. So then I go home and I work and surprisingly I get this job offer and it was because I speak five languages and, and the guy from Deloitte said, look, we're looking for someone who can speak Chinese. Are you interested in, in Spanish and English Mandarin? And I was like, sure, I'm, I'm in. I didn't know what I was doing. I hadn't even been to China at that point. I was 25. I only been to Taiwan and I took the job and I didn't even know what Deloitte was. I mean, as silly as that sounds, and I remember getting the job and the first sense of Pedro is I showed my friends, like, I got a job. And my friend looked at me and he goes, how'd you get the job? And the other friend goes, I want to see a business card. You're full of shit. And that's when I realized the Asian American mentality was off because it was a sense of hatred. And you're sleeping with my brother and my boy. And that's when like, like, like better luck tomorrow just came out. Right. And like, like it was like, oh, that was like a big deal about this Asian brotherhood. And there was no Asian brotherhood. It was Asian haterness. And I, and I, and I couldn't understand it for the first time in my life because I was like, we're from the same people. Why aren't we congratulating each other? So I go home I, you know, I take this job and I worked there for six months as a college dropout. Mind everybody here. And as a manager in consulting, focus in on trying to try this business. And then I get fired and I get fired because I don't want to sit there and say it's my race, but I was the only Chinese guy in, in the whole, in the whole firm. I'm in Mexico and the six guys were together. They all went to college. They're, they're all boys. And so minority boy go out. You know, I didn't perform and I asked for training and asked for all those things. And then I go home and now I'm 26 
I bought my hot new car because as every Asian American is, as soon as you get your job, you need to get the best car, right? Oh, Mercedes, BMW. I buy my new car. Oh, as soon as you get it, you need to invest in a house. I buy a house. And then three months later, I'm flat broke with no job. And now I'm ashamed and I'm sitting at home and I'm not telling people I don't have a job anymore. And I'm, and I'm helpless and I don't know how to get out of the situation. And I can't tell my parents that I'm eating ramen every night. And I realized the shame of being Asian was greater than the shame of losing the job. Because I was, I was more afraid of what my family was going to say than what the world was going to say. And, 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 and that to me was wrong. I couldn't understand what it was at the time. And then a, a, a green light hit me and I said, let me go back and let me ask for this job. But this time I'm going to take a 60% pay cut from 60000 or 70000 24000 a year. And I did a value-added proposition. I said, you give me three months to make and I will sell $2,000 a month or $9,000 in sales and you will turn around and, and, and you will pay me $2,000 and I'll hit the number of the equivalent. And he said yes. And at that point, I Googled everything. I Googled everything about China. I Googled everything that we did from auditing, taxes, and I learned it on my own. And it wasn't the Harvard education that I wish I had. It wasn't the PhD that I got that every managing partner what usually has. It was just a nobody learning and that was from the spirit of our, of our families because we're a bunch of nobodies learning to be somebodies. And that journey really perpetuated my life because in six, seven years, I'm a partner and the day of partnership, I'm walking in and they're like, where'd you graduate college? You know, can we get your U of A certificate? And I go, what U of A certificate? From college. And I said, I didn't graduate college. And they were mind blown. Now, mind you guys, I had been on Forbes, CNN, I was a keynote speaker when the presidents came. The minister of economy right now in Mexico to China worked underneath me. I was on every commercial board you could imagine. And now they realize that this, the Asian who probably they thought had a PhD didn't even have a bachelor's. And then the journey was so interesting because from that point on, you know, it was not the, the, the regular path, right? But they still let me be partner. I ended up going, trying to finish my, my, my schooling but this time it was my master's degree without even having to have a bachelor's. I got a master's, several master programs on partial scholarships because of my experience. And, and, and that is what I want to share because it's not the path that any person, much less an Asian American, should be taking. And then there's a whole group of us that are helpless. So what? I'm not going to be anything, so I'm going to go be a bad kid. You were never a bad kid. You were just in an environment that made you feel like shit, so you, you acted that way. And you know that's not the way you were raised. You know that's not the, the struggle. And for me, it was just that reality check, and I went into Deloitte and made the best of the situation, and I held myself accountable because this is the most important thing I learned during that time was I'm good enough mm. by my standards. I'm good enough. I love myself. I have self-love. I have self-understanding. I have self-value. I have self-worth. Those are things that no one teaches us. And in our cultures, it's even less. And the one thing I tell everyone is no one's ever taught you how to be happy. Nobody. Why have we never learned as a, we learn how to write our language. We learn our cultures. We learn how to assimilate our cultures. We learn how to talk to our elders and all our old traditions that we're holding behind, holding to keep on. But not one single person has ever taught us more so in the Asian American race to be happy. And that was my journey, and that's been my journey, and I, and I found it, and I have ups and downs and things like that, but I, I think a lot of us don't realize is we were generally raised in a very 
it wasn't positive. It wasn't negative, but it wasn't like everything's going to be sunshine and rainbows and go do what you want to do. It was do this to get here, but it wasn't making you happy. And so for me, I like telling you my journey, not because I want to discredit anyone else's journey, but I want to credit mine because there's so many of us out there who are like that, that are a little bit lost, that are very, very scared, that are very, very embarrassed to embarrass our family members. But at the end of the day, when you take care of your parents and you can take them on trips and you can finally achieve the successes that, that, that you're, you're, you're praying to get done, it's an amazing feeling and it's a humbling feeling. Should is my least favorite word in the entire English language because I always wonder how many masterpiece building musicians, artists, world changers are stuck in courtrooms and in doctor's offices today or even yet in some sort of weird mental health hole because they never figured it out, unfortunately. Um, David, I want to go back to something that you glossed over very, very quickly. You got the Deloitte job because you spoke five languages. Right. You self-admittedly, you were a bad student. Yep. You took six years, didn't graduate. How did the five languages come into place? And when did you learn that? Well, we obviously Mandarin is, is we grew up speaking Mandarin because my parents couldn't speak English. And then, of course, Mennonese or Fukunese or Italians, whatever you guys want to call it nowadays, is, uh, was because they were talking garbage about me. And, and I picked it up and I could assimilate the words. And, and English was from school. And Spanish was going every weekend when we started having our own restaurants and working in Mexico and being a dishwasher and a bus boy. And then if I had the time off, there was a basketball court right behind where I played the kids and everybody. And I started learning Spanish that way, mm-hmm. talking to people. And I picked it up about 12 and, and I guess I'm really good at it. And it just, and that's kind of what happened. And I realized that at least those languages are 80% of the world's languages. And, and to encourage everyone here, out of the 250,000 employees that we had at Deloitte, Five spoke the languages, those languages, four worked for me. So that should tell people that that superseded any of the other degrees that were out there. And of course, personal ability, right? Be able to talk to people, be able to sell, be able to be like kind of the, you know, you know, with Asians, it's, it's either one really extreme, like it's really, you know, you're really, really cool, but you're not here, or you're really, really nerdy, but you're not cool. And, and, and I like to think I'm a combination of both because we had to break out of our shell to do the sales things. And, and it really worked out in my favor because I understood the culture and, that, and that's kind of how I learned the languages and went from there. Part of you having that opportunity, though, was just, let's call it luck, right? Like, how does a kid from Taiwan, um, El Paso wasn't your, your, your family's first destination, but to land up in that one part in America that would give you the ability through your family and your restaurant business to maintain the Asian culture, languages and customs. English, obviously, because we're from here, but then to live in a border town that gave you the, you know, the obvious opportunity to just learn Spanish on the fly and not through formal education. And then that's the thing that ultimately was the gate opener for you to propel the rest of your life, which is things that we don't think about, right? Like if you listed your three things, right? Like, you know, David is this, this, and this, and this. What do you think is the one thing that got him in the door at Deloitte and now the rest is history? Nobody's pointing to multi-language skills, but it's not just the language. You can study language off of a textbook or an app these days. You knew three cultures in and out, and you could be that chameleon. And it doesn't, that's the, that's the unicorn part, not the language, right? It's your ability to sit in a room and go English, Mandarin, Spanish, and just even interpret and translate the culture and the tones and the business customs. 
And that I think is your most invaluable skill. And it happened that you got in through, you know, in, in unconventional means, but they didn't kick you out, right? You were there for many, many years. Right. And yeah. I used to work for a big professional services firm, like out of the managing directors and partners there globally across all the brands. How many partners and MDs don't have college degrees? Probably, no, we'll never know because nobody's going to admit to it at this point, right? Yeah, like that's that's how few it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so four years ago, you decided to leave uh, corporate life or, or the Deloitte world behind. That's also interesting to me because when you climb the ladder of corporate, you know, professional services as it is consulting, uh, partnership is sort of the the end goal, right? People go there, they park themselves, they collect checks, and um, and and that is supposed supposed to be or should be, I guess um, that word again comes up. That's supposed to be the destination. Um, but you decided to leave that behind and, and to chart your own path. Um, tell us about that. It, nothing is more scarier to leave something as established as that under any circumstance, whatever the circumstances were, right? Um, it's scary. And, and mine was more economical um, and situational than it was necessity, right? Or want. But what happened happened. And, 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 you know, I like to sit there and say that there was some sort of inspiration. This is why I did it. It was from a very negative thing. It, it was, it was not being, you know, the peso I devaluated half of its value. I was getting paid in pesos. I'm living in the U S I uh, was not getting along with the managing partner. And like every young 30 some odd year old person, I know it all. I'm hot shit. You know, I'm, I've overcome it all. And, and I'm not going to lie to everyone. I was a little bit arrogant, cocky. What most people didn't realize is I also had a bunch of bars, restaurants, and clubs and businesses while working at Deloitte at 500 employees. And so during lunch, I'd run in and cook. And then at dinner time, I'd go in and run the businesses. And on the weekend, I'd go run my businesses. And the next morning, I would go back in Deloitte. And I see three or four hours, which is why I'll be 40 in, in, two, in two weeks and, and, and you know, just recently engaged because it was my priorities in business and life to do it. And when the bottom fell out on that, you know, it was very negative. It was very, very dark. And it was, I remember the tears I had in my eyes. It was December. It was probably, it was December 5th. I can actually remember the, the damn date. I officially left January 5th, but I looked at my mom in tears and I'm so ashamed and they knew something wrong. And I just burst out in tears. That's 33, 34 year old man and said, I'm leaving. It's done. It's over with. Who am I now? What am I going to do? What are people going to say? Who is David Chen after a decade at Deloitte and, 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 and is on every single newsletter? And, and, and now I've proven everybody wrong. Who am I? And it wasn't because I had this aspirational dream to become who, who I'm starting to try to become now. It was because it was a failure. We don't talk about that. Dude, I have failed so much more than I've ever succeeded. But I'm proud of it. And I will tell you that. And I'm honest about it because I don't care about face. Face kills. Our whole entire race, in my opinion, loses because it's all about face. It's not about what's, what we should do. It's about, oh, how we look, right? And that drives me nuts. And for me, I'm out. I'm done. I'm Deloitte. And, and, and I started, you know, I was looking around. And I was fishing. And I started my first PE firm. And we did some amazing deals. And, and for most people here, I don't know if this ever happened. I've had a couple, I'd probably say I've had a billion dollars slip through my hands a couple of times at this point. And we're representing, uh, you know, if you're good at what you're doing, people will stick with you. Deloitte will always have its network. 
I, I encourage anybody that is starting off to do a base like a Deloitte, like something like that, because you, you should learn your base at five, six, seven years. If you make it a partner, you should leave. Because in this world, no one ever, ever questions my credibility because I was my right. boy. It just it is, is what it is, right? And as you see in a non-traditional way, when we started doing sports, we were representing Fosun to try to buy 14% of the, of, of the Memphis Grizzlies, and I met Fosun through Deloitte. Mm. I'm trying to broker a deal for, the, for an NBA team. And then the bottom falls out, and you know Steve buys it for a billion dollars, the Clippers – and it's over. Let's start all over again. And then we got into the cannabis space. And I remember freaking out because we bought a license and we sold it. We're running it. I've never partaken in it, but I just did it. I was like, man, what are my parents going to say? What is my family going to say? You left Deloitte and you, you guys bought a dispensary in Arizona and you're running it? What are you thinking, David? And I had to have that conversation with my parents. So we bought it three, two, we sold it for six, seven in a year. It wasn't a bad thing. And all the tricks I learned were from Deloitte and the restaurants because running that, the core practice of running a business at a restaurant was no different than, than doing anything that's in retail. And that's what we did. And then we, you know, I got into blockchain. I explained that to my parents. I'm like, how do you go from, from Deloitte to cannabis to blockchain and trying to even understand how to say it in Mandarin? And then mainland China and Taiwan, they say it in different terms. And you have to figure out how to say it because you start getting confused. And then I get into esports with GTI Capital. My parents are like, you went from Deloitte to cannabis to blockchain to esports. And I told my parents, I have more connections now through these different spaces. I, mean, I, I made Forbes this morning again, and it was just talking about branding. I would have never had that if I was at Deloitte. And so for most people shame supersedes success. And for us, you should never let shame supersede success because there is no shame. You should stop, stop self-sabotaging. You are worthy. You can heal. You can grow. You, you, you can continue to be everything that you wanted to be, but you have to be happy with yourself. And that's what I did. And, and, and I have my days where we had to figure out to pay bills. And I have my days where we're doing super, super great. And I have, you know, PFS is where I'm worth this much money and nice this, nice that. And I still struggle. And, I, and as an Asian American, I'm very proud to say that. I still have to figure it out. I'm on Forbes. You know, my family's happy with me. My family loves me. I'm super, super engaged with them. And that's what I was lacking those five years ago that I don't lack now. It was finding true happiness. It's funny you mentioned that. I think... I, you and I share a very, very similar passion in mentoring young people, students, early career professionals, basically trying to tell them stuff that we wish we had heard. And maybe we heard it. We just didn't hear it in the right tense or right. somebody who looked like, who looked like us said it. So it, it all makes a difference. It makes all the difference in the world. But time and time and again, the thing that students come up to me or message me after the fact and go, the thing that resonated with you, with me the most about what you said was, you're older than me, but you're still trying to figure your shit out. Right. Because when we hear from people on stages, they never admit to that. Never, ever, ever. They want to do, like you said, it's the facade thing. And maybe it's a combination of the Asian background and the American machoism. Weakness is bad. So you want to flaunt and clout is, is is the new word, right? Like you just want clout. So you go accentuate everything that you did and never put the failures on your resume or never even talk about it or overdress or overextend yourself coming up with external validations of success. And it's none of it matters. Um, but, you know, part, part of your storytelling, um, 
which what I found fascinating is you struck a nice balance between still caring about the opinions of your parents because that matters to you still um, in your identity as a son and as a man, but also have found not to have that direct your decision making, right? So a lot of people don't ever pursue cannabis, don't ever pursue things that are not um, on the menu, let's say, of acceptable things because they're afraid of the shame as we, we talk about often. But you do it, but then you figure out a way to bring them into the conversation so that they understand. Right. Um, w- when I was a consultant, my parents probably still now had no idea what I did. Like, what, what do you mean? Like, cool, you go on a lot of business trips. There's a lot of things about American business culture that is really hard or impossible to explain. And even if you did, a week later, they're like, wait, what do you do again? And, and so it's it's this world that we still care, but we don't do it for their acceptance. We share because we care. Right. And and it's, um, but along the way, um, it, it's really interesting to me. So when our parents moved here, um, collectively as a generation, they did not know what they were going to do in five years. It was, let's get to the end of the day. Let's feed ourselves. Let's make some money. Uh, but within one generation, there was this massive expectation that we were supposed to have all of our shit figured out when we were 17 and to follow this prescribed path. And, but when we pivot, they go, what are you doing? I was like, well, you guys didn't know what you were doing. That's right. So like, why is it any different for me? Right. Um, you, you've, you've had a fascinating path. Um, right now, you're involved in, in a large way in the esports space. Um, obviously, it's an industry that didn't exist when you were at Deloitte. It's an industry that wasn't even that b- as big as it is today when you left. Share with us some lessons that you've had in timing of you, the things that you've done. Most of the times, we don't do things because, like you said, of the shame. Not our knowledge, not our passion, not our love. And it's time for us to realize that. And I told this to my parents. Just because I don't agree with you doesn't mean I don't respect you. That's a big thing, but you have to open those lines of communications. And oftentimes I still get the, oh, you don't respect me thing. And then I'm like, oh, you want to go on a trip? And yeah, we we'll go on a trip. All right, well, that's my respect for you. You know what I mean? Asian parents, I think in a whole, will love us more than anyone else. And they will never have the ability to say it. We need to break the cycle. They need to stop with us. I want my fiance is white. My woman before that was Chinese. You can imagine the discussion. My mom is very traditional on how that worked out and the cultural differences we have and the things that were being said because she's a beauty queen and she's very smart. She says certain things and you know, she's a model. And my parents are like, oh, bikini, oh, so no good. Oh, bad boy, bad boy. You know, that's everything. But it was communicating, and it's communicating in a way that's very respectful and learning how to communicate that they can accept. But the only way to do this, and this is core of business life, is understanding their position. And if you don't understand their position, you'll never communicate to their parents. Their position is, I came here as a nobody to become somebody so you could be way better than me. I'll never tell you that, and you're not living up to what I thought it was, but if you can do this and this and this and go from there – and I remember a conversation with my parents. I said, you know, one thing you never asked me was if, I, if I'm happy. My parents didn't know what to say when I said that to them. They looked at me with shock. And I said, I was completely un happy. 
then. I was unhappy with myself. I was unhappy with the fake person I was. I have 10 cars. I have Lamborghinis. I have a bunch of houses. I have everything you wanted as an Asian American. I paid off my mom's car. My dad's car paid off almost their house. Bought them another house in Asia. And I hate myself. What was the turning point? The turning point was I realized it was just like my dad. Everything I hate about my parents. Everything I... Everything that I resented growing up with them. I realized I wasn't compassionate enough and loving enough and truly gave them that unconditional love the way they taught us to be better. And then when I realized I could do that, I understood their positions. And from those positions, I changed to be a better person. And as much money as I was making, as much money I was doing, I was giving my parents, my parents were less happier with me because I didn't spend time with them. Quality of time. Sitting down and talking about the old days. Listening to the same stupid story over and over again. Teaching my dad how to use the remote control, even though it clearly says power. Now ordering them pizza when they ordered us pizza for 25 years. I mean, things like that. And just kind of accepting them and saying, listen, I have a four-year-old niece that, that no matter what, how bad my day is, no matter what's going on in my life, no matter anything, the moment she asks me to play, uncle's ready to go play, and I'm cool because this is my baby, and I don't have the patience for my parents? No, oh, that's choice. That's ignorance. That's anger. That's not loving yourself and forgiving and being compassionate. And that turning point was when the Deloitte thing happened, and single-handedly, that chain ended up making me crumble my businesses. I started losing one business after another, after another, almost lost my fiance. And I'm sitting there looking at myself and saying, how did you get here from here to here? Why were you so concerned about Gucci and LV and height and not concerned by saving that money and taking your parents on a trip because they don't know how you know, I'm going to live? Or going to see grandpa and grandma or taking those moments that were so memorable because our version of success is material. You know, you hear African-American communities talk about slavery in, in the sense where it comes to clothes and items. And Asians are just as guilty of this, if not more. Right? That's what it is. It sucks. And we don't talk about that. But it did. And when I realized that that wasn't making me happy and my family happy, then I realized that I had to make that shift. So then I sat at home and I looked at my sister's house for seven months taking care of this, this one-year-old at the time. And being very honest with myself and my ego and my personality and what was wrong with me and realizing how I was like certain things of my parents I didn't want to be like. There's a movie called uh, Man, Woman, Eat, Sleep, I think it was. Uh, back in the 90s, it's a Taiwanese film. And the youngest daughter ends up hanging out with the dad, even though she get, doesn't get along with the dad at all. because She's just like the dad. And then when I realized that position, that's how I got my relationship back with my dad. So I realized what he was going through. I mean, look. None of us are gonna. None of us could have survived the Cambodian Pol Pot regime. None of us could survive the refugees of Vietnam. None of us could survive two generations of, of all of us fighting internally with the, amongst Asians. We're definitely not gonna survive communism. We weren't gonna survive famine. We weren't gonna survive coming to another country, and we can't forgive them and love them because they don't know better. They don't know better. I don't know better. I'll be forty two. I don't know what the hell I'm doing half the time. But I'm an expert on Forbes. I have a Rolls Royce. I have nice things. I don't know what I'm doing. And that's what we have to be honest with ourselves. 
And then we have to, if we want that forgiveness from our significant other and from our kids and our parents, why aren't we giving that to them? Right? That's real compassion and love. And so from that, that's how I developed it. And it's still a struggle, man. I learned every single day. I had to check myself every single day. But man, it's worth it. And I encourage you all to do that. How has that mindset change impacted your day-to-day as a business person and the way you approach just being a human being? We don't succeed because we want more. We self-sabotage. And let me tell you what I mean by that. Right now, all of us, if we were graduating high school, or your guys' case, college, which I wish I could fill one day, I will, hopefully. When we did that, that was the highest achievement success. When we got that nice car, it was highest achievement success. And we were able to take, buy our parents that dinner or take them on that trip or even buy our home. It was the highest achievement success. But like most people, we confuse success and greed. We put ourselves in positions where we can live very comfortably, but because John has the new S class, I have to go work and get the new Mybach. We enslave ourselves. And, every, and, it's, and, it, and the hours of time that we put enslaving on ourselves to do that, we're hiding from reality. We're choosing, and I don't care what anyone tells you, this understand, you're choosing to hide underneath success so you don't have to deal with your parents, your family, and the things that you're struggling internally. And for me, it was enough. I didn't need 10 cars. I didn't need the new Lamborghini I bought. I didn't need any of this stuff because it didn't matter because I was losing my family and I was losing myself. And that's where it was. We're sabotaging ourselves because it's never enough. Look, there is a reason that billionaires blow their brains out. There's a reason that actors blow their brains out. And I'm not talking about mental health, which is a completed thing. We as Asian Americans, we don't take care of our mental health. We pray to our ancestors. We, we do every holiday, right? We don't take care of ourselves mentally. And why? Because... And I've done this in business. You're doing great. And all of a sudden it's like, wow, if we expand here, we're going to make that 30, 40% more. What you don't factor in is how much time it's going to take. And I'm happy it's going to make you. So now my decisions are, if I'm going to do this, whether I make money or lose money, that's irrelative. Not because I don't need money, but because I don't need the additional things that are enslaving me to have to achieve that 15, 30, 70,000 a month goal. And I'm not happy. So as soon as I got rid of a lot of the stuff, I had my weekends to myself. I had my nights to myself. I had holidays to myself. I grew up in the restaurant business. I, I spent 20, 30 years in New Year's Eve at the restaurant and Mother's Days and Valentine's Days and, and Christmases because we were the only restaurant open during, during the holidays. And I missed out on a whole length of life. I don't want that for my kids. But making the extra 300 bucks, it's not worth not seeing the smile on my kids' faces or hanging or making the extra $2,000 is not worth not spending time with my parents. It's not worth it. You have to have a, s- a sense of value. And, and anytime I do anything now, is, is it worth my time? And if it's not, I'm just not going to do it because I'm happy. A lot of people will hear what you're saying and will bark back at you. Mm-hmm. And they'll say, yeah, says the guy with the money and says the guy who's X, Y, Z. I want to share with everybody too who's listening. It's backwards. You are where you are because of the mindset. That's right. Happiness leads to success, not success leading to happiness. And part of the reason I wanted to do this podcast with just storytelling is I don't want 
my kids and your kids to have this same discussion with each other in 30 years. And and if we don't intervene, it's going to happen because we are trained at an early age. Um, You know, why do you think we grew up liking or, you know, equating uh, material goods of certain brands as uh, significant markers of life movements? When you get married, you're supposed to gift something. When you graduate, you're supposed to get something. And, And so we've been conditioned to equate those things. And you're right, whether you're broke or have a closet full of them, either way at the extremes, you're like, none of this stuff matters. But somewhere in between, we pursue these things. Um, I don't know the exact quote, but I, I remember hearing something that if your goals are quantifiable, you will expand them so much that you'll never actually achieve them. So if it's money, there's never a point there is enough. If it's a value on your stock portfolio or your house. There's no, you know, you build the world's tallest building and you're like, cool. And then some asshole comes and builds a bigger tower. Oh shit. Well, you, what are you going to do? Build another? It's never ending, right? So you have to have your goal be something that is actually intangible, unquantifiable things like happiness. That's right. And that's it. Like happiness and just calm and health and all these things that I think you know, particularly given what we're going through now that people are hopefully starting to realize that none of this stuff really matters. Um, and so what I find fascinating about your recent story, David, is you are invested in, and take an active participation in esports, which is good because it is timely, but it is also an arena, uh, literally and figuratively, that is in the space of younger people, right. people about half your age. Um you go far beyond the investment. You go far beyond business acumen. Um, I fundamentally believe part of it is your way of giving back to share these lessons and to be the responsible human business leader, older brother, uncle type of figure that, and I, and I hate to say we wish we had because that's offensive to the people that raised us, but um, to give them a different perspective on maybe some things that they never had growing up from their Asian parents or their, you know, I mean, can you imagine if you were 17, if you and I were 17 and you're like, I'm going to go play video games for a living and screw college. Like that was a non-starter um, to tell us about your decision to go into that space. And, and some of the things that you have learned since then that you didn't anticipate learning when you invested initially. The, the one thing I always talk about is be kind, you know, you know, you always hear that story about you treat the CEO the same as a janitor. And for a lot of us Asians, hopefully that's it is what it is. Ten years ago, there was a there's he's a Grammy Award winning nominated producer on E Entertainment. He did Lady Gaga's album Clinton Sparks. Good friend of mine, his books expert back there. He he was a DJ at one of my nightclubs, and at the end of it, I had asked them the next day to have breakfast um, and talk. And he said, "Yo, in all my years of DJing, you didn't ask me to do rails and hang out with hookers. You asked me to talk, and it was weird for him." And we just had a conversation, like me and you're having, just a very honest one. I'm very honest. I'm very transparent. Like, like when we talk about what people say, oh, it's, it's really easy for you. Look, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to pay half my bills at this point, like everyone else. And I'll, I'll, I'll keep, yeah, worth X amount on my Forbes, but I'll keep it real. I, I don't need to lie about things like that. You know, that's not who I am because we all, we're all doing it. And, and I remember him telling me this, and we just stayed friends for 10 years on social media. And I wanted to, and I just, you know, just chime in, chit chat, text. And he goes, yo, I joined this company called Face Clan. It's an esports with a large blah, blah, blah. They have 10 billion views and 330 million subscribers in 2018. They're looking to raise around. And I said, okay. And he's like, do you want to get into it? And I said, it's a sports team. I go, it's the largest, largest in the world. He goes, yeah. I go, how much? He tells me the number. I put it in. I'm in. 
It was really that simple. And it was pretty much my whole savings. I'll shoot that straight at that point. But it was the opportunity to invest in something that I truly believed in because I played video games my whole entire life. And when mom and dad were sleeping, I was playing video games. I didn't care what mom and dad were, th were thinking. I, I remember the story that, oh, you play video game, your, your head's going to be this big, your thumbs are going to be this big, but you're, you're, you're going you're, you're gonna to die. Oh, you're so fat because you just sit at home and play video games. You know, just whatever the Asian parents say that we know it's really loving, right? And then I, I just enjoyed it. And I knew the, the, the power of media, right? What you and I are doing, what, what guys like Ty are doing, my, my cousin, who, who, Yuling, who was the first state assemblywoman of Ch Chinese in New York are doing, is we're doing what we didn't do. We just, we're really navigating the waters and we are kind of so worried about it. We don't, we talk about this, we don't get all the recognition, not from the other communities, from our own communities. That's the hatery. That's the haterism that, we, that we've been taught against each other. And that's why we're failing as a, as a society of Asians. We don't support each other. And I remember the story. There was a lady who was doing a movie. It's called Shanghai Tang. And I met the actress. And she said, the reason my movie is, it was a great movie. So the reason I didn't get hit is because most movies don't make it like they do in the African-American community because they support each other. They were crazy rich Asians. I, you, you hear the statistics. Asians didn't watch it until four weeks into it. It was all the minorities, and then it was, oh, okay, well, I guess it's kind of cool now to go over there and watch this movie. I was guilty of it. I was like, you know what I mean? Like, like, like what? what is this? And then I realized that was the power of esports. And the first deal I did together was actually the Super Bowl commercial, Planners Penis, last year. And let this be number one. A dropout from El Paso who came from Taiwan who was a fob. Put together a Super Bowl commercial, worked together with A-Rod, Charlie Sheen, FaZe Clan, Gary V, Planners Peanuts. And I used my relationships and my, my real friendships. And the thing that Asians lack is we have a lot of friends, a lot of family, but we don't have meaningful relationships. Meaningful, right? Ty and I, Ty, I'll use Ty's example. We have, as honest as me and you have been on our conversation, Jerry, I'm like that with Ty. And for Ty to shoot me a photo of his son don't really know. I've never met Ty physically. I knew that we have a meaningful relationship. It, it's really just caring about you and not wanting anything else back. Atypical of what we've been taught as Asians. And when I did the eSport thing, it was because I want, I knew that 67% of the eSports community are Asian Americans and Asians have the highest rate of suicide and teen suicide. In America, we have the highest rate of suicide and nobody is talking about it because we're all ashamed and we're all upset and we're all, we're, we're all taught not to share our problems. And we're all miserable. And so for me, it was a way to really be part of that. And then I started North American Collegiately, which is a nonprofit league. And we're in 220 universities and we've done 15 different titles. And I have a bunch of NBA players who are my partners. And I did it because I wanted not just to build esports and let people know it's okay. And I speak at universities all the time. But I also wanted to let the Asians know it was okay. I wanted them, Newt, who, who's with me, I met this kid a year ago speaking at U of H. The kid moved, he lives with me now. He left school, left his girl and his family. He was doing terrible in school. He was so lost. And there's so many of those stories. And he says he found his, his sense of worth with us. And there's so many of us out there. And that's why I did eSports because every single person to its core in our culture 
that is part of our culture. And it meant so much to me. And it was a way to get to the masses single-handedly, very, very quickly, hundreds of thousands, millions of people, and spread the message, not just that esports are okay, and an ex-managing part of Deloitte is part of it, which helps a lot, or he's on Forbes yesterday, which helps a lot. And then they look at him like, dude, you dropped out of college. Or you, you, you went through this, or you went through that, and you went through this, and you're Asian. And it gives them a sense of hope. And and that's all I'm trying to do is, is give a sense of hope. Like someone asked me today, what's going to make you happy? What, what, what do you want to do the rest of your life? And I said, if I could just do this the rest of my life and just help, that's I, I, I've succeeded. And to me, that's what esports is. And that's how I kind of got involved in it. And we got lucky. I mean, the valuation last year when I came in was at 120 and then Ford put us at $250 million this year. And I showed it to my parents and, and they were like, oh. And the first thing they said, oh, did you get paid dividends already? And I'm like, Asian parents, there we go again. You know what I mean? Like, like, hey, we're on Forbes. Uh, and I think the first thing was, what is Forbes? And the second thing was, you know, did you get paid dividends? But the point that I'm trying to make across is, is it's always one of those things that you have to grow. In. And, and for me, it mattered because we have a very young community that's very, very lost right now, even more so than ever with this COVID-19 thing, who are being made fun of, who don't know how to defend themselves, who don't know what to say, who are shocked when I see something that a friend puts up. And I have to explain to them why the word China virus is bad, not because it didn't come from China or whatever the heck it was, but because we have seven-year-old amas getting their, their butts kicked in San Francisco and seven-year-old men in New York getting beaten up and throwing acid on. How do you explain that to them? And, and they didn't know that. And so for me, it's a giant mass platform cross-culturally, globally, instantaneously. May 2nd, we have a tournament with Malaysia, Burma, Thailand, South America, Canada, U.S., Fortnite on a global level. Where else can you do that? You can't do that in sports. You play basketball, you have to rest a couple weeks. You gotta fly the team over. But we get the message out. And when people hit me up, I really spend my time trying to tweet everyone back, DM everyone back, going back because it matters to me. I don't care what race you are, but I want you to feel good. And if we can inspire a couple people and, and help them, then we've done our jobs. I think it's awesome. We, we often talk about representation from a visual perspective, right? It's nice to see somebody that looks like you, I can see myself in, you know, whether it is the uh, the partnership at the Deloitte level or at the board level as you are uh, with FaceClan and the many other things that you do. Uh, what most people don't talk about is far more important than that is context. There are, are many, many people that look like me and you that have even more influential uh, places of platforms and don't do anything or don't do as much. Uh, maybe it's a fear of what their you know white or other friends might think. Maybe it's to protect their assets, or you know, it's for for whatever reason. And you know, there's no judgment, right? You live your life however you want. But when we meet people like you who not only have achieved so much traditionally, where you get you know the parents be like, oh, okay, you know, we'll listen to him, right? Because he he checks the boxes, his resume checks out, as they say. Um, but then you are now at this part of your life, at a very early part of your life, relatively speaking to now point that entire canon of attention and influence onto the legacy portion. And most people don't think about legacy until it's too late. Um, but, you know, I believe you have to start, you have to start with the legacy and work backwards into it. Um, share with us a little bit more about um, what the work that you're doing right now with your podcast, with Pandanomics and some of the more active engagements, um, virtual stages, let's say, um, stages are, we'll see when they come back. Um, but you, you have shared with me that you spend a lot of time 
And this is all from the heart. Obviously, you know, you're not going to get rich speaking at colleges or, you know, doing doing these podcast interviews. But um, share, share with me a little bit more about your idea behind Pandanomics and, and why it is so important to you that you continue to share your story. You know, Pandanomics is interesting. And and, 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 I'll, and I think you'll like the name. You know, everyone finally will be. It's David Chen Pan on Twitter, Instagram. I hated the word Panda. I assimilated Panda with fat, lazy, soft, weak. And when people would, would, would racially say the word Panda to me, and for most people I don't know, I'm, I'm 6'4", 6'5", 280. I'm a big, big, big guy from Taiwan. I'm tall, big guy, right? It, it, it irked me because my anger, my manhood was to prove at a young age that I could fight and I could hold my own. And I was an athlete. It wasn't because I had quote unquote slanty eyes, but if I was African-American or white, I'd be a, a first division one prospect because of just my size alone and my speed. And I believe that I wasn't because of my background or because of lack of encouragement from my parents to, to pursue those, those avenues and all that stuff. And so for Pandanomics to name it Pandanomics, it was accepting and embracing the brand that pandas are what they are, but it was a really brand technique because now everyone thinks we're panda at a PF, you know, at, at Panda Express, they'll message me randomly or they're at Walmart, they'll see panda heads and they'll shoot me photos. Like, oh, panda, cool. <laughs> Global branding at its best. That's great. I accepted what, what people could assimilate without being offensive, right? I didn't fall into the stereotype of either which way. Pananomics itself was built to be very honest. And our first, our first series of, of events, I talk about my, my, my childhood and the most honest details I can. My second one's a power of positivity because we're not taught to be positive. We're taught to be realistic or even somewhat negative, right? We're not, it's all 90, oh, good job. Where's the other uh, 10 points? The third one was about ego. Why are egos are such a big deal, right? Those things matter to me because that was, that's essentially been the core of our Eastern culture, but we've lost it coming into the Western culture in the modern age. This is not something that we don't know in our core as Easterners and the way we've been taught and raised we just lost it or we forgot about it or we didn't assimilate it. And that's what Panonomics is about. And season two has been talking to industry leaders, you know, a Steve Babcock who, who is Gary's ex-CCO and, and, and Jennifer Hahn, who is Korean American, who is the IFB woman's you know, boxing champion uh, to Clinton Sparks, I mentioned. And it's, and these are all my friends who are really, really close to me and, and they all have the same core. And I want to share this with everyone. First off, everyone's kind. Nobody's a jerk. Mm. So out of the 10, 12 people I've dealt with, Grammy nominated, Emmy nominated, the head of, of, of Microsoft, to everyone else I've talked to in between, everyone's kind. Number two, everyone is, is hardworking. They don't quit. There is no, I can't make this happen. I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to figure it out. And three, they're all happy with themselves. They found happiness. And without that, nothing else mattered. And that's what Panonomics is about. It's as raw and as, and, and as real as me and you right now, where you saw some tears coming out. That wasn't fake. That's really emotionally how I felt, you know, and I can see it building up in you too. It's just as honest as I can and, and, and the struggles. And I have no shame in saying what my struggles are, because if you're not struggling, you're full of shit. I'll call you out on it. I will. But I want to be honest. There's this whole world of all these big mentors out there. You know, I could do it. I could 
post all the nice things and boost my promo online and go look up. And then the one thing I have is I have Deloitte and you get 2 million followers tomorrow and go buy whatever for 99 bucks and, and only 5% of it works. Come on, man. That, that, that's, that's not the way we're living. That's a shaving on people even more. It's about being honest and talking and helping and growing. And, and, and you're going to realize very, very quickly that all of us have similar stories. All of us have ego problems. All of us have positivity problems, not foo-foo positive, but like right now, oh, I, I don't have a job and, and I don't want to do all my businesses. I'm like, well, at least I saw my home and at least I saw my family. I'll build my businesses back up. It's okay. The world's not going to end. I'm smart enough to do it. I'll figure it out. And that's what it is. And, and, and I hyperventilate like everyone else. Like yesterday, I was going to have a panic attack. I was like, dude, how are we going to pay our bills? You know, here comes May again. You know, what do we do? How are we going to get this done? And, and when it's all said and done, you're still here. You still have to deal with it. And so for me, that's what Pat and Mama's podcast is. It's just a very honest look into corp, being a corporate you know, corporate guy while following your entrepreneurial dreams and living, you know, a good and healthy and happy life where we're full of self-love, self-improvement, self-value. David, I want to thank you. Uh, for the listeners, the context, uh, Ty, who's been on the show uh, from Asians Never Die, um, after we recorded the show, he said, hey, I have some people I want you to meet. Um, and he talked about you before he sent the email. And I think he, you know, either reached out to you or just wanted to give us some thought. Um, but when that email came out, you responded immediately. You gave me time to talk before this um, before this interview uh, because you wanted to get it right and you wanted to get to know me and to understand why I wanted to do this. And looking at your resume and knowing what you do day to day, uh, that's incredible. Uh, that speaks to your character and, uh, it just means a lot because you could be doing a lot of different things right now. Um, you could be sure we all joke right now, right? Like everybody's home, everybody's got all the time, but you have businesses, you have employees, you have uh, fellow board members, you have, you know, nine figure brands that you are responsible for. Um, but yet you take the time to speak with me, and through the show uh, to the countless people that will listen to this show eventually. Um, and hopefully with the goal of uh, helping one little David, little Jerry somewhere um, out there in the universe to choose happiness and, and to understand that you can infinitely love and appreciate your parents for everything that they've done for you, but still chart your own path and, and take them along um, for the journey. Uh, we want to thank you for coming on the show. And uh, we end the show in the same way that we do every show. And it is to go back to the name of the show. And Dear Asian Americans is the embodiment of a love letter to us and from us, uh, yet ultimately for us. Um, as you mentioned, we didn't really have a lot of types of uh, conversation like this, not even amongst ourselves, but just to hear. Um, so um, an opportunity to share anything you want to share with the, the greater Asian American uh, population or perhaps somebody who uh, you would have liked to have heard from at their age. So I will start the letter, and if you could help us finish out the show by completing the letter, Dear Asian Americans. Dear Asian Americans, you're worthy, you're worth it, you have value, you're significant. We have survived 100% of our worst days. Every heartbreak, every failure, every loss, every time we didn't think we could go on, we're still here. Us as a race, we're one of the longest living races in the world, civilizations in the world. We're here. 
And I want everyone to remember that. You survived 100% of your worst days. And so you can survive anything. And you have to break the cycle. Break the cycle with the way you act, with what you buy, with your family, with your kids. You have the ability to, the whole world's human knowledge is in the palm of your hands and you can do anything you want. You just have to believe in yourself and stop hating on our own races, start supporting. We're going to be okay. And I always end up with Panda loves you. <laughs> and that's that. <laughs> I love the fact that you've leaned into an identity and a nickname that likely caused pain yeah. in different parts of your yeah. life. Um, you know, it's one of these things where it's like, oh, why isn't it, you know, you're Chinese, pandas, or, I don't know, they're not Chinese bears, but, you know, they have a, a correlation and association. So, but I think it's very telling and uh, reflective of the journey that you've gone on yourself. Um, as, as you embark on, you know, the next chapter of your life through your engagement and, you know, eventually, hopefully having a, a family of your own, I am so excited for what's to come. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you're turning 40 very soon. Um, you're not even at halftime yet, man. I know. And that's, and that's exciting. It is. That's really, really exciting. So thank you for investing the time with me and to us and to sharing your story. May all this crazy times pass. And uh, let's go celebrate in person at some point, man. Absolutely. Thank you for your time as well. And have such a great platform, Jerry. People like you and Ty that inspire people like me to keep doing what we're doing as well. So thank you. I appreciate you guys. Thank you guys very much. I appreciate you guys. Thank you. See you soon. Me too, my friend. Thanks so much for tuning into my conversation with David. Just, wow. Um, one of the most passionate conversations I've had since starting this show through now almost 40 episodes. And i got to say, I, I think his words hit home for me a lot. Um, whether you're in the pursuit of traditional success right now or whether you feel a little bit lost I hope that this conversation gave you some clarity and some motivation and inspiration to do what you feel is your best health move, your best happiness move, regardless of what your parents, your friends, and society expects of you. If that message resonated with you, please do share this episode with a friend or two. Ask them to subscribe to the show, subscribe to David's show, Pandanomics, and let's get the message out there. So I really appreciate it. Let's keep celebrating APAM the best way we know how, which is to elevate our friends and our brothers and sisters' stories far beyond what we were originally allowed to do, what we thought we could do. Thanks again so much for listening. Follow and like us on Instagram and on Facebook at The Asian Americans. Shoot me a note. Shoot me a DM. Like David said, I too respond to every DM, every email, everything that I get because um, I think it matters for the person who writes it. So let's connect. Looking forward to our conversations together. I invite you to come on the show yourself and to share your own story. Every single one of our stories matter. So thanks again. Have a great weekend. Stay safe. Stay inside. Stay happy. I'll see you next time. This has been your host, Jerry Wan.